This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. When the internet went wide, it seemed like it would be a tool for musicians to reach more people than ever before in an ever-expanding universe of potential fans. But in 2017, the actual upshot seems to be that we have a more segmented world than ever. And a lot of people in a lot of industries are finding more success by super-serving the super-fans than they are by drawing in bigger numbers. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Are you a band who's struggling to run an online store? Let's face it, your bass player is a terrible mail carrier, and you really can't practice when the singer is trying to track down a lost order. Merch Table can help with services ranging from warehousing and shipping to customer service, screen printing, tour logistics, and even marketing. You focus on your art, and Merch Table will handle the rest. MerchTable.com. On today's show, we talk to some people who've had a lot of success starting subscription services, or services that let superfans of a certain label or a certain game developer get in early on what's coming down the pike. It's all coming up on The Future of What. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Jack Conte of Patreon. Jack, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we haven't talked to you in a couple of years. And so I want to hear, I mean, when we spoke to you last, Patreon had been going for a bit and you were using it for your own band's videos that you guys were making, Pomplamoose. But a lot of people are using it now. It's really kind of exploded in popularity. So how have the last two years been going? It's been really, I don't know, superlative in every (laughs) sense of the word. (laughs) Um, It's been really everything. (laughs) Really fun, really hard. The team, the Patreon team is now about 75 people. What? I'm learning a ton. So I'm learning, you know, how to be a manager and how to build products and it's great it's fun i'm i'm having a great time and then you know externally we're helping a ton of people there's you know over 40,000 creators making money on the platform last year you know we had 35 creators that made over 150,000 bucks on the platform we've got creators making you know some of our top creators are are making 40 50 60,000 dollars a month so it's been like nothing i could have ever sort of predicted or imagined wow so what, and this is this is not just people who are making music, right? This is people who are making lots of things? Yeah, I mean, we have musicians, we have video makers, we have bloggers, and we have game streamers, podcasters, a ton of podcasters, web comics is a big category for us. But yeah, it's sort of across the board. I mean, you know, all the tech likes to call them content creators. I hate that word. <laughs> I think it's like doing creative people a disservice. But the it's, it's it's all kinds of folks and, and we're all kind of in the same sinking boat of, you know, our art moving from being consumed on little physical objects that you could sort of buy at various retail locations. And, you know, that's been sort of shifted onto the Web over the last decade. And and along with that shift, we've sort of left 100 years of distribution architecture and monetization structure and all these things that were in place to help creative people get paid. And that's all been sort of bypassed over the last 10 years. And uh, it kind of doesn't matter what you're making. You could be making music, you could be making podcasts, you could be making videos, you could be making, you know, web comics. 
But anyone who sort of was in that world of, well, you used to put out physical things and now now your art lives on the web. We're all kind of in that same sinking ship of trying to figure out how to make money from it. The thing that I keep coming to that's really been the my big revelation of 2017 is that this dream and vision of the Internet has morphed in the last 10 years to the place that we're at now, which is kind of like almost back at scenes. Do you know what I mean? Like these sort of microcosms. I'm not yeah. even sure what the right terminology is for it. I think we should coin something so that we can be the first to have done it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, I feel like, you know, my job running a label, we've almost seen, you know, you know, you used to think like, oh, okay, we're going to put out a record and we're going to try to sell as many records as possible, right? Get reach as many people with this great album and and turn as many people onto this wonderful artist as possible. And I think now it's not like that's not still a dream. It is a dream. But the reality is almost more like super serving the super fans, you know? 100%. Yeah, right? So it's like, let's make something that is just so incredibly cool. And if only 500 other people like it or 1,000 other people, that's okay. We're going to find a way to monetize that. Yeah, exactly. You couldn't have said that better. Uh, you know, it, at the end of the day, like to be a professional artist, you know, which is, that was, that's like the the thing that I wanted to be, you know, to be a professional artist, you have to figure out, you know, how to make money from your work. And I guess I, I've sort of always lived at the intersection of art and money. And so I don't feel weird talking about that kind of stuff. I think a lot of artists do, but the, the best way to get paid these days is not to find 10 million people who like your thing. The best way to get paid is to find those thousand people who like your thing. And yeah, I mean, there are people on Patreon with a thousand fans or 800 fans, 500 fans who are making thousands and thousands of dollars a month. And you don't, you know, you just don't need that. It's not about the hit song anymore. <laughs> you don't need the hit single. You don't need the radio track. You can be in your own scene and you can you can have people who dig your scene and make a living from it and live the dream. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of the dream to be able to make music that you love. And to have a group of dedicated people who love your music and, and to be able to just keep doing that. Like, that's the greatest thing in the world that artists in 2017 have the ability to do now. And we never had that before. So I'm, I guess I'm an Internet optimist. I mean, I, I really feel like it's it's better than it's ever been. Well, and certainly on, I agree with you in that regard for sure. It's it's just it's funny because, you know, from a philosophical perspective, this isn't where we thought this was going to go. This isn't it didn't play out the way that we thought it was going to play out. Now, that's not to say that the way it's played out is bad. In, indeed, what you're saying is it's actually really great for a lot of people. I want to come back to what you said about, you know, some artists don't have it in them to see the intersection of their art and commerce, though, because I feel like those people might not be having such a great time right now. Yeah, totally. You know, what what has happened, and, and again, I'm not sure that this is what people expected to happen, but, you know, what has happened is the internet has kind of created tools to empower individuals. And if you're entrepreneurial and a go-getter and a do-it-yourselfer, you can use the tools that the internet is currently offering to build a business and make a living. And that works for one type of artist. There are a lot of artists that don't want to build a business and make a living and they don't want to think about 
themselves as a business. And, and that's like, that's not bad. It's not good. It's just, I totally understand that. But the internet is not set up to serve those people right now. It's set up, you know, it's the wild west and the people who are getting big and the people who are coming to the surface and, and rising to the surface on the internet are entrepreneurs. They're go-getters and do-it-yourselfers and they're taking advantage of, you know, YouTube and SoundCloud and they're playing the game and playing with the algorithms and and using discovery tools and they're being early adopters and finding the new platforms where the new audiences are. And, you know, that's a different type of person. There are pros and cons that I mean, on the plus side, you know, those people have never had a voice before. The shy bedroom musician who's kind of nerdy who's not going to go on tour and play for 10,000 person stadiums, but wants to play the ukulele from their bedroom. Like it's awesome that that person gets a voice now. And it also, you know, one of the cons is it, it means that there's a certain type of person that isn't doing as well or, or doesn't have the same kind of natural rise. Like you can imagine Jimi Hendrix, you know, he's not going to get up and do a live stream, you know, and hey, guys, make sure you like my new song on YouTube. Like, that's, <laughs> like we're going to not get that, you know, because right. that's not the kind of musician he is. So it's, you know, it's it's there's some trade offs to the new ecosystem. Definitely. And, you know, this episode that we're doing is is on subscription services. Yours is obviously a really great example. One of the most powerful examples going today and so in order to discuss that properly, we have to look at it from the other side, too, which is the consumer angle. And, and you know, that's even more feeding into this super serving, this super fan model, the scene model, because really it's like if the Internet is a smorgasbord and you get to choose what you want, right, the consumer has a lot of power right now because they can say, hey, I really love this particular thing. And, oh, look, they're on Patreon. I can support them and I can get that every week or every month or whatever it is that I want. You know, and it's this very sort of like, fast food model, right? Like it's very convenient, like comes right to your house. Maybe fast food's not the right because it doesn't come to your house. Like Amazon model, right? Like, yeah, I want it. I push a button. There it is. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, the the distance between the person who made the thing and the person who likes the thing is totally collapsed now. I mean, you're you're right there. You're right with, you know, there's there's no trucking companies. There's no marketing teams there's no retail in between those people. There's no brick and mortar locations. There's no massive infrastructure and, and bureaucratic kind of situation. It's just the fan and the artist, the person who made the thing, the person who likes the thing. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I agree. I think fast food is probably not quite the right term. Amazon's a, you know, is a little closer, maybe a little, a little mercenary for, for how I think <laughs> of it. But, but yeah, the consumer has a lot of power right now. I mean, the, the artist does too, but I, yeah, I think the, the wonderful thing about the web is that it enables the individual, whether you're, you know, a consumer or an artist. Right. Maybe I should call it the Netflix model, because actually that seems to be, to me, more where it started. Like, remember when Netflix first came out with, like, you could just watch everything, like you'd watch all of Battlestar Galactica, like back to back or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. And people would just binge watch. They just sit in their rooms for days. And there was that Portlandia episode about it because it was so true. I love that Portland episode. It's so funny. Yeah. And that was like completely me and my husband. We were dying when we saw that because we were like, oh, we did that. We actually did exactly that. Just one more. It's four in the morning. I think I can do it. (laughs) So crazy. But exactly like, oh, my God, I love this art and I can get all of it right now. 
like I can get it. I can I can take this art because it's out there and I, you know, it's I found this thing that I really that really speaks to me. Right. And I think that's interesting. I also think it really is interesting that it's coexisting at the same time with the continuation of that cultural model that we've always had of like we don't know how the sausage is made and all of a sudden you're just a rock star and like, how do people get on the radio? And, you know, there's still major labels. They're still trying to make stars, right? They're still pursuing that same technique that they've been pursuing for 80 years or whatever, where they're, you know, taking people and just turning them into the next Beyonce or whoever, you know, Drake. Yeah. And so it is interesting that there's still, because there are a lot of people, like you said, who, they don't want to see the commerce angle. They just want to believe in the fantasy and like, oh, this person's such a genius. Now look, they're on my TV screen everywhere. Yeah. And I don't know how that happened. And that's okay. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, yeah, totally. There, there will always be, I don't want to, you know, label or management company, whatever you want to call it. There will always be a role for someone who had to help a musician do everything except playing guitar and singing. Like there will always be the role for for the team of people that are going to build the business, you know, do all the marketing, do the management, all, all the things that that an artist might not want to do. There will always be a role for, a, I think, for, you know, a company to do that for a person. But what folks have to understand or I guess they don't have to understand. It's just it's something that I learned over the last couple of years is. Those companies, and this this is, I think, the biggest, this was one of my biggest learnings as a, as a musician. Those companies can't help you make something great. <laughs> they, they can't get you from zero to one. They can, like, accelerate or amplify something really good and, and help it reach more people, but they can't help you make music that people like. They're not going to take someone who's got no goods and make them famous and world touring musicians. I think they can help an artist like develop and reach a broader audience. But I think the fantasy that like somebody's you're going to be walking down the street someday and somebody is going to sort of see you and stick out their thumb and and think you're the next star and then make you a star. You can you can hope for that your whole life, but it's something you just don't have control over. But isn't that interesting? Because I think that's that cultural ideal that I, I was talking about. You know, I feel like we have it across the board. People think that happens to movie stars. They think that happens to basketball players. They think that happens to, you know, you're just walking down the street and somebody's like, you're it. And then they just like take you. And the next thing you know, you're this fabulous person. And they don't see all the work that goes into it. They don't see all the hours of effort. They don't see, you know, the training camps and the, you know, I'm thinking of NBA here. You know what I, you know what I mean? It's like, I feel like that is yeah. this American myth that we have that somehow yeah. people are just found on the street corner and then turned into, I know you know, discovered, right? Discovery. Totally. That word being discovered. Right. Oh, God, I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, it's, it's frustrating from my perspective because it really implies, like it really, it really glosses over the work part. And that's, I think the part that, that for me is the most important that I want artists to understand that, None of this is easy. It doesn't just come to you easily. You have to actually work at it if this is what you want to do, if this is what you want to do as your job. You know, you have to actually make an effort. And I think YouTube and, you know, the Internet have shown that in spades. I mean, when I was looking into, you know, I was just sort of doing some research on, like, who are the top, you know, most watched people on YouTube, the YouTube stars. Man, those are people who, first of all, I mean, they make Minecraft videos. Thank you very much. Yeah. But 
they do it every day. They do it constantly. And those are incredibly professionally done. I can't even start. I'm like, I wouldn't have the attention span. You know what I mean? Like I would make one Minecraft video and I'd be like, that's it. I'm hungry. I'm going to go do something else. <laughs> like, I know. It's devotion, right? They work really, really hard at that. So that's what I love about the new system is that it weeds out the dreamers from the people for whom music is an autotelic experience. And autotelic is this word that I, I found recently that I'm just in love with. It's It describes a behavior that a person does not for an expected reward, but for the sheer joy of the behavior itself. Oh, that is a so good word. Yeah. Me, like uh, making music is autotelic. Like it's the meaning of life. It's why I exist and I, and I love it. And like, if I, if I didn't, like, if I didn't have to make music, if it wasn't just, if I didn't wake up in the morning and go to bed at night and take a shower and go on a walk and have like beats and rhythms and harmony in my head, then I would do something else. <laughs> but, but unfortunately, or fortunately, like, it's just part of me. It's part of my DNA. And, and I think what's wonderful about the internet and about YouTube in particular is exactly what you just said. The people who love it enough to do it, to do the slog, the people who love it enough to push the boulder up a hill every single day and get on the treadmill and run and run and run and run. These people are in love with their crafts and it shows like it's a it's a devotion and a obsession that I think is like unparalleled, like at least by by kind of how, how it used to be. It used to be that you know, if you made it big, you know, someone else could sort of take care of everything for you and you wouldn't have to do the grind. But now <laughs> people that are making it, oh, my God, they do the grind. And it's just I think that's awesome because like, you know that they just love it, you know. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, on that note, that's perfect. Jack Conte from Patreon. Thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What? Yeah. Thank you for having me. was Little Round Mirrors by Harvey Danger. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a comment. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Matt Fiedler of Vinyl Me Please. Matt, welcome to The Future of What. 
Hey, how are you? It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. So this week on The Future of What, we are talking about subscription services. And your service is a really interesting one because I have to admit, I remember back in the day when you started, I was skeptical. (laughs) I remember the early days. What year was it that you guys opened your doors? We started January 1st of 2013. So we had our four-year anniversary earlier this month. Nice. Kind of exciting to think about. Totally. I will admit to being skeptical at the beginning because right around then in 2013, it was like everybody was coming out with like a new idea of something. I mean, I remember practically every day I was getting emails like, we're starting a new service that, you know, delivers sandwiches with on a vinyl record. You know, and I was just like, what? And so I was like, whatever. And so I remember being like a real, not even a naysayer, but just like a whatever about Vinyl Me Please when it first started. But you guys have really grown the company in the last four years. And so tell us about all the things that you guys do now. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of crazy to look back and sort of think about how we originally launched. And I think the core of the product is still mostly the same. So we have kind of two different sides of our business right now. There's the membership model, which is, you know, it's a record of the month club, which every month we're featuring a record that we think is something that's essential for the modern vinyl collection, something that, you know, as a vinyl collector, whether you're, if you've been doing it your whole life or you're just getting into it, these are things that you need to have on your shelf. Kind of spanning, you know, month to month, year to year, we're spanning a pretty wide variety of genres, different types of music, different artists, music from different time periods. So, I mean, we featured everything from like 1950s soul and jazz to early 2000s rap and hip hop to kind of the indie releases that are coming out today. So, a pretty wide variety of music that you get to the membership. And then each of those records are pressed exclusively for Vinyl Me Please members. So they contain things, you know, like exclusive colors from a vinyl perspective or inserts that you can't get anywhere else. So it's not something that you can, you know, realistically just walk into a record store and find that same thing on the shelf and then walk home with it. So you kind of have to be a member for Vinyl Me Please to actually get those records. And then the other side of our business, which has been growing quite a bit over the last year or so, is our online store. So it's it's awesome because as a member, you can go in and log in and kind of purchase additional titles from like a curated selection that we'll put up. We'll refresh the inventory about once a month, new releases, reissues, box sets, so on and so forth. And we do kind of a handful of exclusive, you know, store exclusives that we call them that are somewhere between 500 and 1,000 limited presses that you can buy and then just have them added on to your next monthly shipment. And then even if you're not a member, you can shop our store too, but members kind of get first dibs, they get free shipping. And so some perks are kind of built into the into the membership through that as well. But those that's kind of the main focus of our business right now. When we launched, we just had the record of the month portion and sort of some other pieces around that were really around like you know, we would talk to you on a monthly basis and create some playlists through Spotify and stuff like that. But I think what we also ended up finding is that people trusted our curation with enough sort of like, you know, with enough conversation. And they ultimately just kept saying, like, just send me what you're listening to, send me what you, you know, think I should be listening to, or, you know, I don't care. I just want something new. So that's kind of helped iterate our business and kind of give us a little bit more of kind of the curatorial, I guess, confidence, if you will. So that's where a lot of it, it stands now. And how much has your subscriber base grown in the last four years? 
So when we started, so we're totally bootstrapped, which means we haven't taken any funding from outside investors or anything like that. So my co-founder and I, Tyler, before we were getting ready to launch the business, we basically just maxed out our personal credit cards to get it off the ground uh-huh. and then just went from there. And we didn't have a marketing budget at all. So in our first month, we had about 12 paying members that were mostly like friends and family, which doesn't sound like a lot, but we had 12 people playing us real money to send them music. So we were over the moon about it. Yeah. Grew that first year basically strictly by word of mouth. Uh, like I said, we didn't have any marketing budget to about three or 400 members, I think it was. And then the next year, which was 2014, ended about 5,000 members. 2015 ended about 14,000 members. And then ended last year, uh, just, I think we're around 20,000 members. So we've grown quite a bit in a relatively short period of time from a business perspective. Absolutely. And of course, I'm fascinated with the fact that what you guys are doing is you're kind of running a label, but you're like running a label where your artists are labels. (laughs) Like you call up a label and you say, hey, you've got this great release that we want to do a special Vinyl Me Please pressing of, right? Is that how it kind of works? Yeah, totally. I mean, we sort of like, have the best jobs ever because we get to curate like the entire history of music. Yeah. You know, whereas a label is like, we have our artists and our roster and sort of the, the titles that we own rights to and stuff like that, that they kind of get to work within. But like, I think that's been one of the benefits and that's really kind of a, a reason why our business has succeeded while other record of the month club models have failed in the past is that we're label agnostic. So we don't necessarily, we're not prisoner to anybody. You know, it's not like we have to do five, so many titles a year or something like that, but we really get to figure out like, what's kind of the best out there, what's the best available, what's sort of unique or intriguing inside of its own genre. And let's find the people that own the rights to that and find a way to work with them. So in a lot of cases, we're working directly with labels because, you know, they'll own the rights. In many cases, just as many cases, we're working directly with the artists because they own the rights. So we do kind of have like this best of both worlds type environment where we get to have a lot of cool projects and people that we're working with on these things. So yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. And then you do you do have to do the outlay of, you know, for the manufacturing of, of the albums and everything, which, you know, is sort of the downside for any label. The plus side for you is that you're not like me. You're not trying to break a new artist that no one's ever heard of. First of all, you've got your subscriber base, who's definitely going to get the record. And second of all, for your store, you know, you're putting out stuff that, I mean, I'm just sitting here looking at like the OJs, Backstabbers record. Like, are you kidding me? You know, there's just, this, these are great records that people want to own and to have it in a special pressing that's been very popular lately specialty vinyl so yeah you guys really managed to get onto a great business model here how did you do it where did you come from what is your background yeah so i grew up just outside chicago in a suburb called lagrange and in high school i was really into music I had taught myself how to play drums my dad was in kind of a dad cover band they would practice in our basement so i just got a pretty big exposure to music at a really early age and originally wanted to get into music production when I was going to college. So kind of looked around, wanted to do like kind of a four year, you know, typical degree type thing. And there's only a handful of schools at that time that really offered a program like that. And Belmont University, which is in Nashville, is very highly regarded for their music business program, which is where I ended up going. Uh I got into school and started kind of in the production elements, but it got super technical really fast and it was just sort of like kind of an old stodgy type like culture that I just didn't find myself suited to. So I switched majors and ultimately did a music business with a business emphasis and then got a second degree in entrepreneurship. So 
practically speaking, my degree, I don't think could be more aligned with what I'm doing today. That being said, I think a lot of what I learned in school, I don't know, Belmont, their music business program, at least when I was there, was kind of very old school and sort of the national type way of doing things, which is, you know, lots of people that have been in the industry for a long time and have been kind of doing the same things over and over again. So they didn't really teach kind of an innovative look on music business. But I think my entrepreneurship degree is kind of where I learned a lot of the skills that I use today. I mean, I graduated in 2011 and then we launched finally, please, at the beginning of 2013. So it was a relatively quick turnaround from graduating to getting finally, please, started. But it wasn't like a full-time job until about a year and a half after we got it started. So yeah, that's kind of a, a very quick overview of my background. And you did it without outside funding, which is actually really impressive for a startup, for a, a young new business. Yeah, I mean, I think when we when we started it, you know, we were just looking for something that didn't exist today. We kind of, you know, in startup term, wanted to scratch our own itch and solve our own problem. And my co-founder and I, we were living and working together at the same job. And we honestly spent more time talking about music than we did anything else. And it was like kind of sharing things back and forth, whether it be artists or albums or songs and sort of the, uh, hey, have you heard this? Or I think you'd really dig this or you know, whatever it ended up being. And I think we both discovered a lot of new music and our kind of our, our taste was pushed and challenged, I guess, mm-hmm. in that relationship as well, to where it was like my co-founder got me really into rap and hip hop. And I think I got him into some more like alternative rock type stuff. So we, and we were wanting to get into vinyl, but we didn't really know where to start. So I, walking into a record store for me is like the most daunting experience ever because there's like a million things on the shelf and you're supposed to walk out with one or two things. So how in the hell are you supposed to do that? I don't know. And we were just like, it would be really cool to create a record club for the modern generation, you know, figuring there's people like us that want to discover new music that want to build their record collections. And we could bring back this idea of experiencing music to where it's like, you know, we live in the golden age of music. There's so much stuff being created that most of it often gets overlooked. So how can we kind of find the diamonds in the rough? How can we find the, the things that people maybe have glossed over, you know, have missed or forgotten about or whatever and and bring back kind of a tactile you know discovery nature to music and this was all like as spotify was entering the u.s rdo was getting really big and that whole model was changing from paying for ownership to paying for access and as music fans as people that were passionate about music that that was amazing but we just wanted to have something that we could touch something that we could hold something that was like you know our record collection being like our trophy case of these are the records that we love and and want to actually own so that was kind of the impetus behind wanting to start the club in and of itself. And, and then that's sort of what really drove us is like, if it's a subscription model, then it should pay for itself over time. So we shouldn't need to get funding that, and I would say a healthy amount of ignorance to where we were just like, you know, this will be fun to try. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. We're not going to you know, waste a bunch of time trying to figure out who's going to finance it and who we have to convince to, to give us money to let us do it and whatnot. So, Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I mean, this whole idea of subscription services and, and you know, what, what you guys do and Spotify playlists and even what labels do, I think really what it comes down to is we help provide people with filters and those filters are still needed and they're probably needed more today than ever before because, like you said, there is just so much music out there. There's so much more recorded music right now than ever before in history. You know, I think about when I started listening to music for real in 1981, you know, how many years it had it been since the Beatles, right? I mean, if, if I was right. going to listen only to rock, I only had that many years worth of music to listen to, which is actually not that overwhelming. Right. 
yeah. now, <laughs> the amount of music out there is completely paralyzing, right? Like, where do you start? How do you get into that? And it's funny because I feel like Americans, you know, we're so independent. We're so, uh, you know, frontiers people or whatever the heck. We're like, I don't want someone else telling me what I should like. But the truth is then, what do you just do? You go to the record store and, like you say, have a panic attack and leave? Like, <laughs> where do you start? Oh, I know. And it's 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 so funny, too. I mean, kind of like what you're saying is back in the day, it's like there was like my, my dad always has this thing where he says there were like 12 bands that you've heard, you know, and they just, you know, the record labels just kind of force those bands down your throat. So whether or not you wanted to, you like those bands or at least, you know, had the majority of your exposure of music was through those bands. And now there's like the amount of permutation that has happened from just like the Beatles or from the Stones or from Led Zeppelin or from some of those bands back in the days to the influence that it's brought about today and sort of like how music is even made today, whether it be kind of in-home studios or something like that, that it's like anybody, literally every anybody on the planet of the earth can be a musician and they can put stuff out. They can distribute it through Spotify. They can put it on SoundCloud. They can do whatever they want with it. And, you know, in some cases they're like shouting into an empty void where <laughs> like there is, there's literally so much noise going on that like as an average person or as, as an average consumer, it is like literally impossible to keep up with. Like, to look at the calendar of here's all the new releases coming out this week. There's like, I don't know, hundreds of them. Right. How are you supposed to listen to all those things with before the next set of releases? Right. So I think, you know, what we see is our jobs being is like kind of distilling, obviously the bad from the good, but I think the great from the good as well. And really trying to find the things that are great, the things that are worth your time and putting those on the pedestal that they deserve. Because in some cases without, I'm not to like kind of toot our own horn to make it seem like we're more important than we are, but without services like ours or without people talking about these records, they will just go unnoticed and unheard. And, you know, they'll just kind of be a blip in the radar. So we really try and, you know, take our, we take our job seriously to find what are the records that matter? What's the music that matters? What are the artists that we, you know, think are today are going to be relevant in 10, 20 years from now. And how do we get that music to as many people as we can? to put it less in sort of a business perspective, it, what it boils down to is like, I am a music fan like through and through and the music that I discover, the music that sort of like defines a certain time period or defines a certain emotion or defines a certain event is what is most important to me. And if I can bring that type of experience to other people and help them sort of find the music that can define their own soundtrack, then that's like a job well done for me. You know what I mean? And I think, there's so much of the world today is so there's so much surplus, especially in music that giving context, giving an understanding, giving even the exposure to something new or something different. Like that's kind of what we see our jobs being and we take it very seriously. So it's a lot of fun, but it's also like a little bit of a heartache of like, ah, man, I don't know if this record is better than that one or if that artist can be relevant in 10 years. So like, how do you make those decisions today? You know, it's not like we have the golden year or anything like that, but I think, we just try and find things that we're passionate about and, and try and find ways in which we can bring them to our members or people that are just kind of staying in tune with what we're doing or what we're talking about. Well, I think that's an honorable thing to do. I mean, that's basically what I do with my label. But, you know, it's it's a little harder for me because I'm trying to hear that in a diamond in the rough style new band <laughs> that doesn't have yeah, yeah. a track record. So, yeah, I kind of envy you your job right now. I kind of want to come do that. <laughs> it sounds kind of awesome. <laughs> It's 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 an amazing job. I wake up every day and I'm super excited and love what I do. I can't wait to get to work. 
but it also comes with its own headaches and heartaches and stuff like that. So yeah, for, for anybody listening, you know, don't be totally envious of my job. <laughs> you know, certainly I love what I do and stuff like that, but there's definitely a fair amount of heartache and headache that comes with it. So no doubt. Well, Matt Fiedler, the co-founder and CEO of Vinyl Me Please, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Here I dreamt I was a soldier And I marched the streets of Birkenau And I recall in spring the perfume that the air would bring to the indolent town Where the barkers called the moon down The carnival was ringing loudly now Just to lay with you, there's nothing that I wouldn't do Say lay my rifle down And try one, and try two Guess it always comes down to Guess it's better to turn this way And I am nothing of a builder But here I dreamt I was an architect And I built this balustrade to keep you home To keep you safe from the outside world But the angles and the corners Even though my work is unparalleled They never seemed to meet The structure fell about our feet And we were free to go Try one, try two Guess it always comes down to Okay, guess it's better to turn this way. That was Here I Dreamt I Was an Architect by Colin Malloy. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it, Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Kevin Duquette of Top Shelf Records. Kevin, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks for having me. So anyway, today what is going on is we wanted to talk to you because Top Shelf Records is a label that has been around for 10 years, which is very respectable at this point. You know, congratulations. Well done. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah, it, it feels like a blur. I can barely even remember how different things were. It's 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 a bonkers amount of time, but it also feels like a week. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. But it means I because I took over. You guys started in uh, 2006. Yeah, yeah. That was the year I took over Kill Rockstars. And so our positions were a little bit different in that you were starting a record label with, you know, pretty much nothing. And I was running a record label that had a big catalog. But in terms of the music business, we both faced the same crazy yawning abyss because like two years later, everybody decided music should be free. 
and we weren't going to sell physical product anymore. And we all had to sort of fall into that big hole. Totally. <laughs> like starting a label at that point, it was like the pinnacle of everything was like, yeah, we want to put out physical product and do a really good job with it. And then it was like, wait. <laughs> right, right. Oops. Oops. What? Bad timing. Yeah, for real. <laughs> So the fact that you guys are still around is very impressive. So that's why I was giving you a little round of applause. I mean, it's funny, you know, for years I would say, I don't know why anyone would start a record label, but it's, it's crazy because so many people have done it and they even did it like at the worst moments, like 2009, 2010. I'm like, that is crazy, but people have been making a go of it. So I have to change my opinion. I see it more as like, if you do a good job connecting with your audience and, and, doing a good job curating and like, you know, elevating the voice of the artists you work with, then people are going to gravitate to that regardless. So I, I think if you're, if you're good at that, then you can kind of transcend all of the broader trends or what have you. So yeah, that's true. If you can find an audience, you know, and, and that's basically, you know, it's like if you can find an audience and then you can figure out the rigors of like, how do we sell music in the digital age? How do you, how do we sell music, you know, via streaming rather than, you know, CD or whatever, whatever our eight track, <laughs> whatever our That's not to say moment that is like super real though. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds so easy. Oh, just find an audience, go out and find an audience. No problem. Yeah. 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 So it's hard. So now after, you know, making it through weathering the storm and now it's 2017, you guys have started something new for 2017, which is a subscription service. So that's what I really want to talk to you guys about today because I think it's really interesting. I think subscription services have become one of the income generating streams that I would not personally have predicted, but it does seem to be something that people enjoy. So tell us why you chose to do this. I didn't foresee this ever in our future either. And uh, it's a definitely like a larger trend that I'm catching on, especially when you consider the like, digital aspects of Kickstarter updates to backers, Patreon updates when you're supporting uh, an artist or, or individual on there, the Bandcamp digital, I guess you could even make it not digital and send physical product to subscribers. So there, there's all these platforms that are kind of introducing tiered subscription services. And for us, we always just avoided it because we didn't want to feel constricted by you know the potential financial crunch of going, okay, if we in January launch a annual label subscription and, you know, we want our price point to not fall to like getting like $3 a record or something. Cause we put out tons of records without, we, we always just kind of go by the seat of our pants here when we're, when we hear something we like, and we really want to put it out, we don't want something like a subscription service and the number of releases we're putting out in a year and our bottom line to affect, you know, whether or not we put out that record or not. And we've put out like last year, including our cassette series, we put out, we're, we're involved with like 32 different records, which is just such a staggeringly dumb number. Yeah. So this year we decided, uh, you know, let's, let's try and reel it back. We can really, you know, we only have so much bandwidth. There's only four of us at our office and, you know, there's only so much we can handle. And so if we scale things back to doing, you know, something a little more down to earth, for us, like 15 to 18 records, you know, maybe if we, you know, stay rooted in that number, then it might be, you know, okay, then a subscription service or the subscription uh, kind of seems a little more realistic because if we stay set in that, then 
you know, we can make sure that we're getting the price per record at that point. And there's definitely an element of, you know, we've been a label for 10 years and there's people who have bought, you know, more than half of our titles over that time. And to give them a way to just kind of have a record show up and get them, you know, we're, we could try and give incentives and perks to to subscribing and send people like instrumental stems or demos. Uh, we mailed some people some set lists from some bands and, you know, just signed vinyl and just random little uh, anecdotes that are just cool. And I don't know, just try and make it worth people's time. But that whole package altogether, I think, is just something that you can't get any other way. So people are kind of drawn to it. And I've seen a lot of other labels doing it lately. Yeah, it, it's definitely something that's taking off. I personally thought that you're, the fact that you guys are doing crew neck sweaters, I'm like, I want a crew neck sweater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, do, do you guys like weave it yourself? I'm like, I'm, I'm, this crew neck sweater has got me really, I'm, I'm really jazzed about it. And you can't get it with the digital. So I'm, I'm just letting you know, <laughs> I'm kind of obsessed. What does this crew neck sweater look like? It, we just got them in, I think like a, a, a week or two ago. Are they wool? What are they made of? They're like like the the nice ones that <laughs> that you get from like a like a J Crew or something. I don't. Know. They're like terry cloth or something. I don't really know a lot about clothes. I wear like t-shirts every day. I live in San Diego. <laughs> you are not the right person to ask about this crew neck sweater. No, fine. <laughs> I I order because you know I was like I want to wear things that you know that are merch or whatever that uh you know I want to print and make stuff that, you know, I would actually wear too. So I realized sometime last year, I was like, a lot of this stuff we do, I don't think I like anymore. I don't think I would wear it anymore. So kind of did like an overhaul of all of our, our stuff. And the crew neck thing was like, yeah, let's just offer that as a thing to subscribers. So they kind of get like team Zizu kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Little tiny piece of advice here from, from me, put a picture of it on your website because I want to see it. <laughs> yeah, I got you. I want to say it. No, it's like, you know, these are really, I, I mean, I think where we're at in the music business right now is this interesting moment where a lot of people like you and me, you know, and, and certain bands, right, have been around for long enough that there are fans, that there's this group of people who are kind of invested and interested in, in what's going on. And the crude way of putting that is like, how do you monetize your fans? But I think it's really not, it, that's not really the right way to put it. It's more like, how do you engage with your fans in a way that gives them something that they want? You know, they're interested in you. So then how do you, how do you work that? Like, how do you say, what can we give you that you guys are going to be happy with? And so this subscription series is really interesting. I think that's one reason why a lot of labels are doing it because they can be like, hey, we can give you guys a bunch of special stuff because you're interested in our label. But also, you know, we're going to give you everything we we release because you have liked what we've done in the past. And and it is it's really interesting because I think in the past the model was always get more fans, get more fans. You know, ignore the people you have and go out and try to get more more more. And I feel like that that is where things have have shifted a little. Yeah, I, I, the thing I've come to realize is that you get more 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 by just servicing the people that already are into what you're doing because they become advocates of what you're doing if you're doing it well. Exactly. And so, you know, we actually this year, and I don't know if this is dumb or not, we'll find out, but we just made a decision to stop advertising like entirely, except for just like, you know, random boosted social media posts or whatever. Cause 
dang it, you have to. But uh, <laughs> like, just sort of like you know, we're 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 gonna focus our efforts on basically trying to give people uh, that are fans of the label more incentive to stay fans of the label and to get excited about things. And that's just spending a little bit more money on like cool little extras that we can just mail people in in their orders and random just unexpected things where we just did this thing where we went through our store and just exported all the names that have ever ordered more than 10 things from us. And we're just going to randomly send everyone like a free enamel pin and t-shirt. So like things like that are, are, I think go further in like a little postcard that just says thanks, you know, (laughs) but uh, uh, things like that, I think go way further than spending hundreds, sometimes like over a thousand dollars for like a print ad, which I, so, you know, think we're, we kind of just reassessed where we were spending our money in our advertising, marketing, whatever efforts. So yeah, part of that is also, you know, the conversation that we had that, got the subscription if you will we're just like you know what other kinds of things can we be doing but people have been asking us for this for years and i don't think you can just launch a just subscription from the start you know I, we had to be a label for 10 years before a subscription was something that was viable i think because i think you need a, a history of showing what you're about or whatever so there's a i mean i think no one's going to support something unless there's a previous trend of like oh i like what what they're about. So, you know, here's my, exactly. my upfront, like whatever, $220 for you to mail me like 15 vinyl records, right? This over the course of the year, like, no, I can't get anyone to just, yeah, okay, sure. Sounds good. I'm, I don't know anything. <laughs> so, you know, that, right. that also, we felt like it was maybe time. Yeah, it, exactly. And that's, you know, that's why I included bands in that when I was talking about that earlier, you know, I mean, I think everyone always goes back, you know, sort of harkens back to that Amanda Palmer Kickstarter moment when she raised like $1.2 million for her new album. And then, you know, that spawned a million articles that was like, labels are no longer needed because artists can now just crowdfund and and make records. But the, the truth is only artists that already have large fan bases can do that successfully because just like you said with labels, if you have never put something out, you're untested. You don't have that group of people who are like, hey, we really, we know we like you. We want to see what this next thing is that you're going to do. So I always thought that was just really comical because it's like, you know, who needs a label? Well, everybody until you get to a certain level. (laughs) Yeah, there's, I I think there will always be a role for a label in the role of releasing music, but it's going to be changing always. And that's, that's fine with me. But it's also something that, you know, we we have to evolve with. It's less like the P and D side of things. And now it's more the like, getting it into the right ears kind of thing. And like a lot of it is, especially as things go digital, it's like, I need this in playlists. And I need this. And it's it's harder to reach people as an individual. So what I mean, you only handicap yourself, I think so much of music is, is who you know, and and in the relationships that you've forged over the last like decade or so. And yeah, I've learned to just be really dang nice to everyone because everyone's always in a next thing you know, you're like, hi, wow, you do that. That's crazy. Remember <laughs> remember when we used to go to basement shows together? Wild. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, what what I think you're saying is. Crazy is, tangents, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, it's, that's totally fine. 
is, you know, it's like labels may not, you know, they may not always be called labels, but it's really more that gatekeeper function of, you know, it's like what a label has to offer a lot of times is a group of people who have been liking that label and who are going to be willing to take a chance on something else that that label puts out, you know, because they're like, well, I trusted your taste for the past 10 years. I'm going to trust it with this one. And that's what the subscription service is basically supporting, you know, is that idea that that these people are going to get behind you and say, yeah, you know, we have faith in you that of the 15 to 18 albums that come out, maybe I won't like a couple, but maybe I'll really love, you know, six or eight of them, which would be totally worth it. Yeah. uh, And that's, I mean, what I'm hoping is there, you know, there's like, I was kind of touching on earlier where there's a thing, anyone that's even a casual fan of the label or aware of what we've been doing, like could correctly presume like what, like the general vibe of the whole series would be or the whole, our whole release output for the year. And if that sonically lines up with your tastes, then, you know, you're probably going to have a good time with it. And sure, there's going to be like that oddball one or two that you don't like. I like everything we put out, (laughs) but I understand like not everyone's tastes perfectly aligned with mine. So, you know, and at that point, it's like, I don't know, give it to a friend, put it up on Discogs and, you know, just I I don't even know. (laughs) But it's sort of I think more I mean, we have subscribers that are signing up for it. So there's. I think people are willing to offset that with just the surprise people who doesn't like getting mail actually like that's one of my favorite things I think most people could agree with that even when it's from like Amazon or the IRS (laughs) (laughs) actually that loud the IRS maybe not the IRS (laughs) might throw that one under the table for a little while they just mailed me a couple days ago saying that they owe me money from like 2013 because I overpaid what Oh my God. And you were like, this is the greatest moment of my life. (laughs) Probably the only cool thing that'll happen to me in 2017. So yeah. Right. (laughs) At least from the government. Yeah. Right. Jeez. Um, That's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) So another aspect of your subscription service that's really cool is that you guys are donating portion of the proceeds of each subscription to certain charities which are obviously in need of support at this time. So I think that's a really cool thing to do. You guys have picked the Trevor Project, NAACP, Legal Defense Fund, and Planned Parenthood, which is great. Yeah, that was something that was, for a while, geez, backing up a ton, really since like I was way younger and like started the label, occupationally speaking, I've always kind of felt a little guilty about like, oh, you are head and went into music and you don't do really anything to help society as a whole and (laughs) you know like I'm just like like what do you do that's good and like I need to remind myself that like you know music connects with people in different ways and there's a lot of positivity in that but there's certain things where I'm like we could be doing more I feel like and I've thought that for for years and there's the bottom line your margin on like you know, making money and continuing to be a thing as a record label, especially as like an independent record label is so small and so thin that it's like, it's very hard to go like, oh, sure, I'm going to make this contribution to X, Y, or Z charity or whatever, and, and not like feel that hit really hard. So we've been trying to marry just all kinds of different ways that we can be passively and not just like, or the big thing with the the subscription and and other things that we implemented at the same time was the struggle that these organizations and the people that they protect and serve and represent they're 
the challenges aren't going away, like because we made a one-time donation. So we didn't want our efforts to either. So there's sort of like a really a, 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 for the forever now, we're saying we're just every pre-order we do, and a dollar from each pre-order will go split equally to each one of those organizations. And with the subscription, you know, $5 minimum, but people can choose to pay more if they wanted, goes to each one you know, split up equally. And we did a free giveaway of all our old digital catalog for, geez, like from election week to the end of last year. And we haven't tallied it up yet, but I think we we did between like four and $5,000 that we're going to donate to them too. So there's things like that where I'm like, okay, cool. I think we figured out like this model to make a social impact in, in, in things that we care about, but also still like, just be music heads. So, uh, <laughs> so with all that, like it's something that is a culmination of like years and years of like us trying to find a balance of how can we commit to like positive social change and also putting, you know, we have like 50,000 followers on Facebook and tens of thousands on all these social media things. I think it's important for them to see that like an entity like us and others like us get behind things like that. So yeah, that's just something we were pretty psyched to do. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I think that more and more now, every aspect of our lives is going to have to take into account, you know, what we can do for other people. Because I think especially now we're we're looking at, you know, things getting worse really rapidly for a lot of people. So I think, you know, even... The last 48 hours are pretty insane. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, like really rapidly, like within the last 48 hours rapidly. Yes. And, and I think that that's going to, you know, I mean, I think the personal has become political really quickly. And, and I think so even something as simple as buying your music that you like to listen to has taken on an aspect of, you know, how can we make that also give back and help people who need it? I, I, I think it's really great that you guys are doing that. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, right on. Thank you. Way down. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Duquette is the co-owner and co-founder of Top Shelf Records. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today on The Future of Life. Yeah, thanks for having me, for real. I'd say you make a perfect angel in the snow All crushed out Stop for goes too far. Don't you know that I love you? Sometimes I feel like only a cold still life that fell down here to lay beside. That was Angel in the Snow by Elliot Smith. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Support for The Future of What? comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Carl Hofstadter of Joyful Noise Recordings. Carl, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you. So today we are talking about subscription services, and I wanted to talk to you 
because Joyful Noise has a subscription service, basically, a VIP membership club. Maybe back in the day, they used to call these clubs, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that, people can, yeah. that people can join. It is kind of a revamp of the old, the old record club. Totally. So how long ago did you guys start this club? So it kind of began not with the VIP, but one year earlier with the FlexiDisc series. This was at the tail end of 2011. I I had the idea of essentially like back then FlexiDiscs were still sort of an odd format that people didn't you know remember yet, and not very many people were doing them. And I had the idea of essentially doing a monthly subscription of FlexiDisc releases from our favorite bands and they'd be exclusive tracks that aren't available anywhere else. And the thought being that well, all these amazing bands all have B sides that <laughs> weren't good enough to make the record. And maybe we could get some of them to, uh, you know, donate their song to this stupid idea. So <laughs> we, like, I, and I was, you know, like really surprised and delighted at the bands that, you know, that agreed to do it. And I think the first year we had like, Lou Barlow was on it and uh, Deerhoof of Montreal, Tortoise, Jet Fair, a bunch of like my favorite bands. So that was sort of the beginning of it. And that's when <laughs> from the, it was kind of spawned out of a, you know, necessity, like financial necessity. Mm-hmm. Like um, you know, the whole saying like, a, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. Correct. So I had quit my day job and I didn't know how I was going to be able to afford steady pay for myself to pay my, you know, rent. <laughs> and that was kind of the, like the, the recurring revenue aspect of it was this, the practical measure that we needed to start growing as a label. Right. And so the following year, we kind of branched it out. We kept the FlexiDisc series going, but we branched it out into more of a intangible VIP thing, which is more about like access. So VIPs get, you know, the first, before we, you know, announce the record publicly, they get the first crack at it. You know, we release a lot of limited edition things that sell out right away. So VIPs get to hear about that and have like special access to our site to purchase those things before uh, they're available publicly. Mm. But then also like certain, you know, limited version of every release is like only available to VIP members oftentimes like signed and includes bonus materials and all that stuff. So what I found is it's a good way to get people invested in the culture of the label that we're doing. Right. So beyond just the practical, you know, recurring <laughs> revenue side of things, it's, I think it really helps, especially our smaller bands. There are a lot of people that are sort of invested in the culture of the label now because of this VIP thing that you know, we'll take a chance on a smaller band that otherwise, you know, they never would have bought the record. Because of like it's 10% off on purchases. So maybe they'll just go ahead and try something that they haven't tried before. I think it's, I think it's actually more, it's less about the discount. It's more about the trust, mm. you know, like, yeah, the VIP thing is just made people pay attention to the label as a curative entity. And, you know, and, and it's gotten to the point where like, you know, if we just, if we, you know, made up a band and it didn't actually exist and there was no music online or anything, we could still probably sell like a couple hundred copies of it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just because there is, not that we would do that, <laughs> right. but like, but you know, it's a good thing for like, 
it allows us to take chances on smaller bands, you know, that we, we don't know if this is going to sell at all. You know, this band has never recorded anything or toured at all. Right. And it allows us to like, to at least know that we can press 500 copies of their record without losing our ass. Right. Which I think is an important point that we should talk about more. But I, I want to ask you first, what was the difference, the before and after difference to your bottom line after starting this service, the subscription? Yeah, I mean, it was it was gradual. You know, we didn't start out with just an insane amount of people signing up immediately. But, you know, I would say the first year we probably had 500 people or so signed up for the VIP thing and then another 500 for the Flexi. That grew, I think today we've got like maybe 2,500 people. So to the bottom line, I mean, like that's, that's huge. That's like basically our payroll. That's amazing. Every month. <laughs> that's so great. <laughs> yes. Young labels take heed. That is a really good <laughs> business model. No, it really is. It's, it's really smart. Yeah. I mean, we're, we lucked out, you know, I, I also like always try to appreciate the fact that you can't ab- abuse it with people, you know, like if you start not providing the value for this, then like people are going to get sick of it and drop off. And so we've had to kind of like create new roles that aren't normally at a record label to make sure that we, that we stay on top of it and like really keep the experience of, of our, you know, top customers and VIP people really keep that experience a positive one and do like interesting ways, you know, what positions? Well, let's see, we've got, we just created a position for, uh, <laughs> I, I haven't, I don't know if we'll like rebrand this with a cool sounding name, but right now it sounds very businessy, but B2C marketing manager. Ooh, Yeah. You <laughs> guys could do better business to customer. <laughs> you could do better. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but we just haven't put much thought into it. Mm-hmm. And then we also have like, you know, customer liaison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's more like different than customer service, right? Like customer service is like reactive. You're just dealing with people who have problems, have had a right. problem, yeah. you know, whereas like this liaison position is more, you know, proactive. Like, you know, we're really trying to like do interesting, cool things, you know, every, every month so that, people remember the value in it totally and they and they like being part of the the club you know yeah so you probably have had to update you know what the various services are or the things that you give them yeah totally every year it's 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 changed a little bit i think that's part of it though we're never going to find like the perfect you know thing that we just stick with forever right i think it'll always be a thing that we want to change every year to sort of to be able to adapt with with the times you know yeah no doubt it also sort of, it, it puts you in a position where you need to have a pretty steady release schedule because you've got to have stuff coming out every month yeah. to please the that's, VIPs. Right, that's true. That hasn't really been a problem for us, but I could see that being a problem for a, a young label, you know? Mm-hmm. You might not be able to do a monthly subscription if you're only coming out with, you know, one record every quarter. Right, yeah, that's important. So, yeah, it is so important. you were kind of in your middle, you know, if you're a 10 year old label, you were right around the fifth year when you started this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, in some ways I would look at the subscription as the beginning of the real label as a mm-hmm. business, you know, right. the first five years, the label was 
basically, you know, me in college getting student loans to put out my friend's records. Right. But then you had a catalog. See, that's when you start a label, you have to eventually, you have to put together a catalog somehow. And that's that's how people do it. You know, they put out their friend's bands. They put out, you know, people they know for a while. And then eventually, you know, you either get sick of it and get a real job or you, you know, come up with a (laughs) good business model and make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, exactly. But getting back to what you said before, you know, it's interesting. I think what you said about, you know, when people become members, they're basically buying into the culture of the label. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is an experience that I think of from my childhood. You know, when I think about the great labels that I loved as a Mm -hmm. kid you know, IRS and Matador and Mm -hmm. Parlophone. I mean, just labels I can think of where I'm like, oh yeah, I would totally check this band out because they're on that label. Right. And the funny thing is, I don't think that that has actually changed, but I do feel like perceptions have weirdly changed. So people, like not all people totally see record labels like that anymore, but maybe I'm wrong and maybe it's that the same people who used to think that still think that. It's just that a new crop of people have grown up thinking music is actually just something you stream on Spotify and doesn't have a label associated with it. Right. Well, I think that that's the entry point for most people these days. Most young people, they'll first start hearing music digitally. You know, now it's Spotify. A few years ago, it was iTunes. But, you know, if if they're real music nerds and they start really getting invested in it, as you know, people tend to do. I think that discovering the label that a band is on is one of those natural sort of progressions so that you can discover other music as well. So I don't think it, I almost feel like it, like that's like a label's job is only to be that filter at this point. You know, it's, it's really easy for bands to record records and distribute them worldwide digitally and even press them on vinyl themselves like that's not something they need labels for but like getting people to actually care about your record amongst the millions and millions of records you know is the is the real challenge right and i think that like a label i don't know like maybe it's maybe we're coming back to a time where the label culture is more important because I think it, I almost feel like it. It was, it was really important in like the early indie punk period, whatever you know, like '80s, and then it kind of died off when like maybe like I don't know, maybe when Nirvana signed with <laughs> with Giffen or something, you know, mm-hmm. like the label culture got more like that didn't that wasn't as important because punk rock was mainstream at the time, and then in the digital age, I feel like it matters more than ever. Because there's just so much music out there and you can never, ever listen to all of it on face value. Like you need to have a filter. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that is, you know, I always say that's what labels are good for at this point in time for sure. Because, you know, people want to say like, oh, a band doesn't need a label. And it's like, well, you're right. A band doesn't need a label, but a label does provide this particular service that's kind of hard you know, for bands to do by themselves if they're brand new, you know, because it's, it's not right. a meritocracy. It's not impossible, but it's, not it's impossible. really difficult. <laughs> but it's really not yeah. a meritocracy because it's, there's just too much in there. You know, people who are saying like, well, if it's really great mm-hmm. music, it'll rise to the top. It's like, well. Not really. Not no. really. <laughs> there's plenty of great music <laughs> out there that nobody is listening every to. Every day. Yeah. You know, that are 
you know, that we can't even afford to put out. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that kind of gets to like one of the, these other subscriptions that we just started doing this year, mm-hmm. like as a way to try to combat that, like the fact that there are so many great records that don't rise to the top. Mm-hmm. We started this white label series and the concept is basically like I lined up 12 semi well-known musicians to pick their favorite unknown album, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we release that on 500 records. And so it's kind of like, it's a monthly record club of like the best unknown albums picked by these rock star type people. Wow. That's see, that's (laughs) a good idea too. That's a, look at you. You're such a label idea guy. I like it. Is there a place to look for that online? So it's sold out pretty much right away, but what we did Basically, so we did 500 copies, like strictly limited to just, just 500 copies, and they're still in like subscription form on our end. But then we're paying the band in 125 free copies, which is basically 50, it's the equivalent of 50% right. profit. Mm-hmm. But we decided to let the band sell their own copies rather than like, like we could pretty, pretty easily just sell them for them and write them a check. Mm-hmm. But we felt like it was, it would just, be better for their development as a band <laughs> mm-hmm. to like instead to let them sell their own copies on their, you know, band camp or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so every month when we announce these new records, we get to say like, you know, we are sold out, but you can buy copies direct from the band while they last, you know, and then cool. direct people to their band camp page. Oh, that's awesome. And I think that that is kind of a better way to yeah. facilitate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Are you going to do it again next year? Is it a yearly thing or you, did yeah, you just do it one definitely, time? Well, it, this is the first year we did it. And so it's kind of an experiment, but it definitely feels like, feels like it's a good idea that people are really liking. Sweet. You know, we had a lot of the artists, you know, want to do more than one. Like they couldn't really, they're having trouble narrowing it down to just one <laughs> album to pick, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think we're going to do it again next year. Cool. Well, Carl Hofstetter from Joyful Noise Recordings, thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What? My pleasure. Thank you. I want to take a moment to tell you about the Peer Pleasure podcast from Jabberjaw Media. Host Dewey Hoppus is joined by your favorite artists and creatives to discuss the stories that shape them into who they are today. Our very own Emily Heller is an upcoming guest, along with Thursday's Jeff Rickley and Jim Wilson of the Rollins Band. Visit peerpleasurepodcast.com and subscribe today. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Harvey Danger, Colin Malloy, Elliot Smith, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstar. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.